Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I wanted to talk about, I wanted to reflect really on the last few months and some ideas and some thoughts that I've had when I've been working with people for SGRC, State Government Relations Committee, as I've been working through and kind of watching what's happening in our profession from a public perception. And so that's really what I want to focus on our, our conversations on today. The day prior to Thanksgiving, there was a article published in The Atlantic. And the article was really misinformed, I mean, blatantly misinformed about what the profession does, what optometry does, the importance of comprehensive eye exams and linking those to a eyeglasses prescription. And I thought the AOA and Dr. Barb Horn had a really great response to this misinformation and this idea that, that optometry is completely associated with putting barriers in place uh, that are protectionist for our own profession to prohibit patients from getting glasses prescriptions from a storefront that take you know no time at all. What was kind of striking to me in general with this article's overall sense is that from what I've seen from a state government relations committee standpoint over the last really not just year, but years as some of the online retailers are becoming more and more aggressive with refilling contact lenses, trying to get less regulation, manufacturing their own lenses, substituting those lenses, things that we see all the time. The thing that I think is interesting about this article, and I'm suspicious of it, highly suspicious of it, is that there's no disclosures for associations with any of these companies, but I think if we dig a little bit or, or if we have enough digging, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the person that wrote that article actually has some association or affiliation with some of these other entities that are trying to deregulate the sale of products like glasses and contact lenses. And not just selling those products, but actually deregulate the prescription of those products. And so what, to reiterate again, I think the, the response was really appropriate, but it really made me, from, from an AOA standpoint and from a Dr. Horn standpoint, but what it did is I, the response was essentially how important comprehensive eye exams are so that we are coupling prescriptions with comprehensive examinations. And I, I am not disagreeing with that in any way. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. The other thing that I thought was was very good about our response was that we underscored this idea of how many systemic diseases can be detected through an eye exam and how many systemic diseases have been detected through an eye exam over the last year. I thought that was extremely important. The thing I think we need to continue to focus on is the fact that isn't eye care enough? Aren't isn't eye health and vision enough without focusing on the systemic impact? And of course, I'm not underlying, I'm not uh, minimizing that in any way, but isn't it enough to focus on the fact that good eye health and vision is critical to a patient's standard of living, their productivity, their quality of life? Isn't that enough for us to be able to make the argument about why it's important for regular comprehensive eye exams. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of contrast a few chronic diseases. I think a lot of times our profession gets off 
by saying that we are managing eye diseases that are chronic in nature. And then we sort of stop in general with the idea that the chronic diseases would include things like catastrophic, obviously damaging vision diseases like glaucoma, like macular degeneration. And then we also put on top of that acute conditions that we manage, things like retinal breaks, corneal foreign bodies, posterior vitreous detachments, corneal ulcers, you know, acute infections. So I think, again, all of those things are important, but I wanted to start considering and contrasting this with other professions who are really managing chronic diseases and also managing more acute diseases and figuring out the underlying mechanisms for how those are being contributed by chronic diseases and articulating that well to our patients. So I think in general, if we want the narrative to change from a standpoint of trying to battle back in the media when people call you know, eye care in this country a scam, I think anybody that's that's seeing patients on a day-to-day basis knows it's not a scam. We know that we're taking care of patients with lots of chronic diseases. But I think there's there can be a time where we do get so busy in our practices and we're not informing the public that we're seeing on a regular basis that you know all the things that we're watching for and monitoring and treating. And so if that's the case, if we're not communicating them well to our patients at large, then we're going to have to to continue to sp- you know, fight back these messages and and the public and worry or be concerned that the public will be swayed by these messages. So I wanted to focus on a little bit of an exercise. Um, so if we look at just chronic diseases, so I'll kind of run through some numbers, some prevalence data of chronic diseases, both for older patients and younger patients. And I'll sort of provide some citations within the uh, text of today's within the footnotes of today's show. So if we look at, at glaucoma, for example, everybody thinks about this number, but to quote these studies, the estimated overall prevalence of glaucoma in the United States, non-institutionalized population, 40 years of age and older is 2.1%. So again, um, if we take all of these, all of this information and sort of aggregate it together, we think of the first two, which would be glaucoma. The next would be macular degeneration. And in terms of macular degeneration, the studies, big prevalence studies say, quote, the, that aging is the greatest risk factor. Therefore, the prevalence of AMD in the United States is anticipated to increase to 22 million by the year 2050, while the global prevalence is expected to increase to 288 million by the year 2040. In the U.S., the prevalence of AMD is similar to that of all invasive cancers combined and all and more than double the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. This high prevalence leads to an annual of $4.6 billion direct health care costs due to AMD in the United States. And as the aging population increases, this expenditure is likewise expected to increase proportionally. And then, so those are kind of the two major chronic diseases I'm leaving out cataracts because cataracts in theory are curable because with, with cataract surgery. So so that's not a huge number. If you look at 2.1% for glaucoma and 11 million, so we've got about 327 million people in the country. If you take 2% of them uh, and then 11 million of them, you're talking about a total of, of about 5% of the country have 
those two conditions. Now that's significant. It's not insignificant, but I think with, with our focus on those alone, we miss a significant portion of the, the patients, the population in the country that really need to be managed by, by ongoing care without even mentioning the prescription of glasses and contacts. So let's look at dry eye, for example. So 6.8% of the US, U.S. adult population was projected to be diagnosed with dry eye disease, which is about 16.4 million people. The prevalence increased with age, of course, um, and it was higher among women than among men. This, um, again, is an adult population, and the range of ages in this study was between 18 and uh, greater than 75. I believe it was about 80 years old. And so then we look at meibomian gland dysfunction just prior to cataract surgery. 52% of patients have meibomian gland dysfunction, and 56% had meibomian gland atrophy equal to grade one at least. Meibomian gland function correlated significantly with lip layer thickness, symptoms, age, and gland atrophy. If we look at meibomian gland dysfunction in general, there was a study that found that 70.3% of the investigated population and the mean age of the patient was 55 years plus or minus 16 years, so had signs of meibomian gland dysfunction. So uncoupling meibomian gland dysfunction from dry eye disease, because meibomian gland dysfunction doesn't give us immediate symptoms or significant symptoms that is that are always associated with dry eye, even though we know it's a big underlying factor, that's a significant portion of our population that's over the age, essentially over the age of 40. If we look at, um, so just at older patients, if we do those numbers and just add those, again, I understand that patients are entitled to more than one disease. But if we just look at those four disease states, meibomian gland dysfunction, dry eye disease, and glaucoma, cataracts. It's about 80, let's see the math, about 82.5% of adults, assuming that they only have one disease per person, um, 82.5% of United States adults have a chronic ocular disease, meaning that the value of our services for those patients is not wrapped up in prescribing glasses or contact lenses. Essentially, it is in managing that disease. And if we're not articulating this well to those patients that we're watching for, monitoring, and actually appropriately treating for just those four diseases, how are they to know that our value isn't wrapped up in the numbers that we write on a piece of paper that they want to fill um, wherever they, they choose to fill? And, and they right, rightfully should have the ability to fill them wherever they choose to fill them. But that's not enough of the story, I think. If, if we're going to fully understand this story and articulate this story well, the easy thing to say to those who would oppose us for the case that I just made for that 82.5% of the population, besides the fact that, yes, some of them are going to have conditions that are combined, obviously they can have cataracts and meibomian gland dys dysfunction, obviously they can have glaucoma and AMD and meibomian gland dysfunction and dry eye, of course. So maybe we drop that number to 40% or, or 30% if you wanted to of patients over the age of, of 40. But still, it's a significant portion of the population. Now, we would still be missing patients that are under the age of 40. So people might say, why would those patients need to have a comprehensive eye exam 
instead of just being able to have a pair of glasses. Certainly systemic disease rates are much less in that population than in populations that are older. So maybe they don't need to have the comprehensive eye examination coupled with a refraction. As the, as the person in the article wrote, they were a healthy kayaker who almost drowned but lost their glasses and thought it was funny that they lost their glasses but were so, was so concerned that, that they were having such a hard time getting a new prescription uh, as they would like to have. So let's look at the younger population. So if we look at chronic diseases in younger patients, we'll start out with the obvious one, keratoconus. There's a number of studies that look at things like scissor reflex and uh, keratometry values. Those are sort of early studies. The, the, when you look at video keratography and look at studies based on, they look at prevalent, prevalence look using definitive, basically t- topographical or video keratography examples, in college population, that prevalence was about 2.34% of a college population. If we throw in binocular vision issues, again, which are major- a significant number of them would be considered medical conditions that medical payers would pay for. This study looked at 32.3% of subjects showed general binocular dysfunctions. In 10.8% of the cases, accommodative excess was present. 77 had convergence insufficiency with accommodative excess. And 6.2 showed accommodative insufficiency. 3.1 had basic exophoria, convergence excess with accommodated insufficiency, basic esophoria, and fusional vergence dysfunction all showed about 1.5% prevalence. So again, if we look at, at younger populations, that's significant. And those are not just vision diseases. Of course, we all know they're not just diseases that and dysfunctions that impact patients where a prescription for glasses or contact lenses is the only or the best option in, in many of these cases. And so, um, so let's keep going. If we look at allergic conjunctivitis, a study quote found that allergic conjunctivitis alone has been estimated between 6 and 30% of the general population and in up to 30% of children alone or in association with allergic rhinitis. If you look at meibomian gland dysfunction in patients that are, that are around 21 years old, this study found, quote, the frequency of meibomian gland dysfunction among the sample was 25.5%. Frequencies of asymptomatic and symptomatic meibomian gland dysfunction were 10.1% and 15.4% respectively. And frequencies of obvious and non-obvious obstructive meibomian gland dysfunction were 0.9% for the obvious meibomian gland dysfunction. Here's the real thing that, that I think is really important and 24.6% of patients who were 21 years old in this study had non-obvious meibomian gland dysfunction. And so, again, that is pretty significant. So if we look at those conditions in younger populations, meibomian gland dysfunction, allergic conjunctivitis, binocular vision issues, and keratoconus, just those four conditions, assuming that every patient or every person could potentially only have one condition, again, we know that's not true, that would be 90 0.14% of younger populations can have a chronic ocular disease or dysfunction, which says nothing about refractive error. And, and I want to point out one more thing. So to amplify that point of meibomian gland dysfunction in patients that are around 21 years old, the rate of non-obvious 
myeloma gland dysfunction was 24.6%, and asymptomatic myeloma gland dysfunction was about 10%. And so if we think about that in relation to dentistry and their fight against cavities, okay, so just one condition again, although I want to I cite a study on the amount of, of cavities or the prevalence of ca- cavities in different time periods. And they have essentially been stable um, with a slight decline from about 19, the 1960s to about 2012. But here's to quote that study. It says, although dental caries have, dental cavities has been declining in permanent teeth for many children since the 1960s, previous findings show that cavities in primary teeth for preschool children increasing from 24% to 28% between 19 88 and 2004, and disparities in cavities continue to persist for some races, ethnic groups in the United States. Prevalence of dental sealants applied to the tooth chewing surfaces to help prevent cavities also varied among sociodemographic groups. This report describes U.S. youth dental caries or dental cavities and sealant prevalence by race and Hispanic origin from 2011-2012, but the bottom line is that the rate of cavities to justify evaluations, just cavities alone. Of course, any of these one conditions, we're not justifying all of the comprehensive care that we're providing or dentistry is providing for that one condition. But if we just look at cavities alone, 24 to 28%. And if you look at meibomian gland dysfunction, non-obvious meibomian gland dysfunction, we're about 25%. So the bottom line, I think, with this is that I rarely see in fact, I don't know that dentistry is fighting these battles the same way we're fighting these battles in the sense that they do have a concern for some of these direct-to-consumer remote tech technologies that are claiming to be able to move teeth and perform orthodontia, those sorts of things. I think that's pretty clear. We've seen some action taken on state boards for dentistry. But I don't see this sort of obstructionist mentality against dentists the same way I'm seeing it against optometry because I think dentists have for many years understood their value is in their services they're providing to patients, whether it's filling cavities, replacing teeth, uh, and, and doing other periodontal work. They have seen their value through the time that they're taking to address those things, not through selling things like toothbrushes. Now, again, I'm not saying that we should stop uh, making these things available in our practices. I'm not saying that we should stop selling glasses and contact lenses in our practices. I'm saying that in addition to doing that better than anybody else in our practices, our focus should also be and should increasingly be on the value that we're providing for the chronic disease management. And that should be nuanced throughout the entire process of how we're communicating with patients, both who are both healthy and who are both asymptomatic as well as symptomatic. And so I understand a lot of challenge with that is as I go across the country and work with other practices and talk to other doctors across the country, I think generally in Nebraska, uh, we're very isolated in the sense that we have pretty good coverage uh, we tend not to have narrowing networks like people are seeing in other in other parts of the country, although I do expect that insurance companies, even in the Midwest, 
will won't be shy to continue to narrow networks and and what that means essentially will be to squeeze out providers that um, may not perform surgeries for saying at their at their hospital or may not have hospital privileges at their local hospitals I, I I thoroughly expect that that will continue to happen and I don't think there's necessarily one solution that every single state needs to take I think some of it could be legislative in the sense of making helping laws that will prohibit discrimination against optometrists in mass or even in function. And I think in some states it may be the case that we need to communicate better and have better relationships, better open relationships with payers to to communicate what we do, to communicate the things I just talked about, that patients are in need of that care. And there's really nobody better to provide that care than optometrists in these locations and and around the country. And so the the uncoupling of selling things in our practice with the value of the the services we're providing I think is immensely important for us to continue to consider and to continue to to define for patients while they're in our they're in our care. And I think the result of that is and and I don't think this is necessarily because of something that we've done I think it, it's been replicated. I've seen it many times across the country is that I am, I'm under no illusion that our patients think that they could get online the same thing that they can get in our practice, both from a product standpoint and from a service standpoint. I, I don't think that there's any illusion that our patients have in general because we, we do make it a point to discuss and treat actively all of the conditions that I've just mentioned here to you today. And so I think it's pretty clear for those for our patients that if they decide to go someplace else, whether it's online or whether it's a, a telehealth service that's basically just having a technician come up on a screen and twist dials and they're not actually looking at their eyes on the surface or on the inside of their eyes, I'm under no illusion that my patients will think that that is going to be the same thing. And so... I think there's many practices across the country, many doctors across the country that that think the same thing. But when our when the public's perception gets written in an article that articulates that the only value that we're providing is to obstruct patients from getting glasses and contact lenses as often as much as they want to for whatever power they want to that seems to me to be a problem that we need to look internally for and be able to continue to communicate to our patients about how important all these other things are, but not just how important they are, but also that we are actually managing them well. And so uh, with that, the other couple of things that have been on my mind that have kind of detracted from, I think, where we're going as a profession and where our focus needs to continue to be in terms of growing our scope of practice that re- to reflect our education, our knowledge, and our skills, and our training. I think sometimes we get distracted by the culture around us. And one of the examples of this, actually two of the examples of this that have really troubled me over the last couple of months is as we were putting on the state government relations committee third party committee conference in Dallas in September 
we look over some of the, the reviews and one of the reviews in general, they were wonderful. Uh, the people that were hosting those different breakout sessions, the committees, they did a, an absolutely wonderful job. They had really had glowing reviews on the content. And in general, the location had really great reviews. The AOA staff did a wonderful job facilitating people's needs and wishes and wants and really running a tight meeting that, um, that got, uh, they got a lot of great feedback. But one of the, the things that I, I couldn't help but see, and I wonder how much this actually impacts the profession, is that in general, we look at f- social media and we look at the culture and sometimes we get very polarized, that there's no in-between. And one of the comments that was made, of course, this event took place in Texas. And one of the comments that was made was, I don't want to give my money to a Trump state. And I thought, that's so short-sighted, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Because in one year or four years, five years, whatever it is, or we go five years ago, Somebody, we could have had a, a event in Illinois or in New York or in California, and somebody could have written that they, they didn't want to give their money to a, an Obama state or in the future to a Elizabeth Warren state. And, and so it, it troubled me because it was so distracting from the rest of the, the comments and the rest of the really goal of what we're trying to do and move forward as a profession and trying to continue to improve access to quality eye health and vision care for the United States as well as outside of the United States. And it, it was the one thing that, that somebody could have thought about was they didn't, they didn't even care if they were, if they were giving their money to their side's state, they would have been okay with that, which means that that they would be okay with that. And there probably would be people that might think the other way and that would be fine with them as, as long as they got their way. And I thought that's just doesn't seem to be one, what our, what our society is built on is being able to, to figure out ways to work together. And certainly isn't really the way that our profession has been built on. I mean, certainly there's people that I disagree with politically and there's some of my my greatest friends and allies in our profession that we we can figure out a way to put those those things aside and work on areas that we can work on together have conversations about things that we may disagree about completely and and maybe I get to change my mind a little bit and they get to change their mind a little bit and we can continue to work down the path of of understanding each other's points better and and I I guess my point is about all of that is it seems to me that it was distracting from the overarching goal of what we're trying to do as a profession. And it was so distracting that I wound up having a really great conversation at a following meeting uh, that wound up going down the path of another sort of social issue that wasn't entirely related to optometry, but, but was related enough. And after I got done with that conversation that I was planning on posting on the podcast, Uh, And and the person that I was having the conversation with had fully gone into it, intending that we would post it on the podcast. But they were so concerned that our, especially after some of these comments were made, that our ability to actually be effective in changing and, and working with states and working with people within those states, 
that our conversation had gone to a place that really wasn't that charged politically, certainly not right now, but our conversation had gone to a place where they were, after reflecting on it for about a week, were uncomfortable enough to say, hey, Chris, I would just really appreciate it if we just couldn't post that on the podcast. And so um, we had this wonderful conversation, a really illuminating conversation where I actually disagreed with some of the things that, that he was talking about. And, and I think we got to the heart of at least some of the issues on this one issue that would have helped people kind of grow in their understanding. But because of the polarized nature of our culture and because of, of this idea that I'm just going to one-up everybody, they were so uncomfortable with that conversation not because the conversation was uncomfortable, but with other people hearing that conversation and what they would judge about them, that they completely wanted uh, not to not to put it on. And of course, I always tell tell my my guests that that I don't want to have a gotcha moment. If anything is uncomfortable for you, that we will not air that that version of the podcast. And I was completely happy to do that for them, but I was also disappointed not by them but actually by the fact that we are in this situation now where there are things that we can't discuss because it may be, be off-putting to somebody else and will actually make them dislike us. And that just seems not American. I mean, it just seems like not what we're trying to, to move forward with as a society. It, it seems to not have been what we built our society on. So with that... I would love to see us continue to grow in ideas and understanding and continue to help our patients with their eye health and vision issues and being able to articulate it well to them and in a way that can help them kind of understand the things we're doing by the communication and the actual treatment of those conditions, essentially that doesn't place our sole value on the sale of a product. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and write us a nice note if you really enjoyed it. That definitely helps expand our reach. And I'll see you guys next week.